Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. Wherever you are, whoever you are, crypto skeptic, half believer, or enthusiast, it's really great to have you tuning in to Crypto Unstacked, where we bring you a cup of crypto every week and unstack everything from crypto finance to global macroeconomics. This podcast assumes basic knowledge of crypto and aims to explore some more advanced topics about the crypto markets, such as trading strategies, lending, and derivatives. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group. This week, I chat with Chow Wang. Chow is a longtime crypto enthusiast. He has an extensive background in quantitative trading and more recently was responsible for building out Masari's product team. You may know Chow from the world of Twitter, where he has been a prolific writer on all things crypto and DeFi. In this episode, Chow unstacks DeFi from first principles, talking about the fundamental elements that drive the thriving ecosystem. He also takes us through his thoughts on DeFi as a zero-sum game, the information asymmetry that exists between DeFi in Asia and DeFi in the West, and also what it means to decentralize the entire DeFi stack. It was a fun conversation, and as always, thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Chell, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's really great to have you join me on the pod. Thank you for having me. Chow, I've really been looking forward to chatting with you. I, of course, learn a lot from you on Twitter every day and benefit from your honest views about the space. And I have a ton of questions for you today. But before we dive into all things DeFi, can you share more about your background and how you've been involved in this space? Yeah, for sure. So I actually come from a traditional finance background. I did quantitative trading for almost 10 years, built out a couple of trading businesses from the ground up in New York and Chicago, and both places were fairly big. The desk was responsible for about 2 to 5% of the entire uh, U.S. stock market in terms of trading volume. So that's about like trillion dollars per year worth of trading. But I've always been involved with the crypto community as well since like 2012, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Monero, all these OG uh, communities. But 2018, started building Masari, which is a uh, crypto data and research company. So you can think of it as uh, Bloomberg for crypto. So I was part of the founding team, built out the product and engineering team. Spent a couple of years there, grew the company to about like 20 people and a couple million dollars in revenue. But I transitioned out earlier this year, maybe in like April, because the company is getting to a point where it's a little bit too big for my taste. I like, you know, just being by myself or uh, working within a small team. So I transitioned out, you know, since then I, I had a lot of free time and really deep in, in DeFi. I'm also currently co-leading the DeFi Alliance with Imran, whom you've spoken with recently, as well as some of the big trading firms in the U.S., like Jump Trading, DRW, CNT. So that's my quick background. Great. Well, Twitter is definitely benefiting from uh, your free time. <laughs> <laughs> 
What's been surprising to you about crypto in general? Let's not even get into DeFi just yet as a free agent, so to say. How are you spending your time soaking in everything that's happening? Well, number one, it's impossible, right? Even if you have a team of 10 people, it's not even possible to keep track of everything that's happening in DeFi. There's so much happening outside of DeFi as well, right? Like there's gaming, there's the layer ones, there's DAOs, there's even like handshake and stuff like that. You need at least one person to focus their entire time on one specific project. I usually just, you know, spend, uh, obviously I spend a lot of time on Twitter. I used to write a lot, like long form writing, but nowadays I just got lazy and just spend like maybe 20% of my time on Twitter and following a bunch of people. But also like, I, I like talking to people like outside of, uh, like in, in real life. Well, by real life, I mean like virtually, like online, like, you know, one-to-one sort of uh, virtual meetings. You get to know a lot of information that's not really publicly available on, on Twitter or, you know, Reddit or whatever. Honestly, I think crypto might be the, the single fastest moving industry that I know of. If you feel overwhelmed by the pace of innovation in crypto, don't worry about it. No one can keep track of everything. <laughs> yeah, much faster than your days in the equity markets, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the thing with uh, traditional markets is that it's very saturated. There are some new companies getting listed. You know, there are some new sectors. But generally speaking, the strategies are kind of stale. Obviously, you can find new alphas here and there, but generally speaking, it's very competitive. It's definitely a zero-sum game, at least in the short term. It's been three decades since we had like, this electronic trading and stuff. So things are getting very, very competitive and not moving so much. You touched on the point of DeFi being a zero-sum game, and I, I definitely want to get to your thoughts on that a little bit later. Just to kick it off, this is the eighth episode in this DeFi Defined series. Chow, I'm excited to start off by focusing on the first principles of DeFi. So let's start off with the basics here. What's fundamentally interesting about DeFi to you right now? That's a really good question. I think there are some things that are reminiscent of Bitcoin. You could consider that Bitcoin as DeFi, but if we use the strict definition of DeFi, like everything that's happening on Ethereum right now, there are some things that are reminiscent of Bitcoin, and there are some things that are new, right? So the things that are similar to Bitcoin are things like control and freedom, you know, in some ways, slightly better privacy. I'm talking about these these terms in relation to traditional financial services, right? So for instance, when I try to send like over $10,000 worth of US dollar via my bank, through like a wire transaction or something. I usually get a call from my bank saying, like asking me, why the hell are you, are you doing this transaction, right? So I lose my privacy, but also I lose a lot of time. Every single call like this, like it takes a couple minutes. They ask me a bunch of questions. So there's a lot of friction in this traditional financial sector. Whereas in DeFi and in Bitcoin, you just copy paste a string of characters and numbers, and then you're done, right? So obviously, uh, you're putting the responsibility of uh, safeguarding your token and, and making sure that uh, you're inputting the, the right address. But in return, you get control. In return, you get freedom. And in return, you get data privacy. So that's one thing that DeFi is new compared to uh, traditional financial services. But then there's also things that don't really exist in Bitcoin, but that are fundamentally new on Ethereum. And most, most of that is due to uh, the programmability of Ethereum. So first of all, people talk about the idea of composability, right? Essentially, like, composability means just that if you build a protocol or, or a product on Ethereum, 
or any other you know, programmable blockchain, by default, your interface is open for other developers to build on top of. And that's one of the most incredible differences between DeFi and traditional financial services. Because for instance, you know, let's say you have a, like a brokerage account, right? Like, I don't know, interactive brokers, right? Or you have like a banking account. These accounts, they do provide you with some APIs, but usually they're by default closed, right? Like they're not open to everybody. And plus they have uh, full control on who has access to this API. Like the user does not have control. But the uh, product itself, like the company, like the broker, they have control over everything. So you can get the platform if you were to build on top of, on top of these APIs. Whereas in DeFi, these APIs are completely open, permissionless for anybody to build on top of. And as a result, you, you can see some very interesting products that are being built on, on Ethereum or in DeFi in general. So for instance, you have Curve, right? Curve is uh, you know, a stablecoin exchange. Uh, by the way, they launched their token recently, so I think a lot of people know about Curve. What, what's really interesting is that when you provide liquidity on Curve, not only do you earn fees from liquidity provision itself, from like earning the, the spread, but also Curve is integrated with Yearn. And Yearn is, is integrated with a bunch of other like lending platforms. So as a result, when you provide liquidity, you receive not only the, the spread, but also the yield that come from platforms like Compound and Aave. <laughs> That's what makes this like so incredible. Like I think the volume on Curve has already surpassed the centralized exchanges for st stablecoin trading. And I think the main reason for that is because of this, this ability to not only providing liquidity, but also earning yield. Now, if you look at the analogy in the traditional financial services, something like this, I don't think it exists, right? You cannot really provide liquidity on interactive brokers while earning yield from, you know, Lending Club. And the only reason for that is because their APIs are not fully open. Yeah, siloed environments. Exactly. I think composability might be the most fundamentally interesting thing about DeFi. But obviously, you know, there are some other, you know, minor benefits of DeFi as well. Like, for instance, right now, most of the uh, DeFi products don't really do KYC. I don't know how long this will last because part of it is regulatory. At least for now, the lack of KYC means that the onboarding process is very simple. And the offboarding process is also very, very simple. If you were to withdraw money from a DeFi product, it's literally just clicking a couple of buttons on MetaMask or whatever. Whereas withdrawing money from a centralized exchange, you know, sometimes you have to go through like a lengthy process. So no KYC, good, simple, frictionless onboarding process. And then last but not least, the ability to have one wallet sitting on your, on your mobile phone or on your browser that is able to access a bunch of multiple uh, financial products at the same time, rather than having one account in every product. So for instance, uh, in CeFi, centralized finance, you need to have one account, say on, on Coinbase, and then on um, Binance, and then so on and so forth. But in DeFi, all you need to do is to onboard once, install a wallet once on the browser, and then all of a sudden you can access Compound Ave, Kyber, et cetera, et cetera. And again, that's just you know incredible friction reduction. So I think you know obviously it's a very long answer to a to a short question, but I think these are some of the fundamentally interesting things about DeFi. Yeah, yeah, those are some great points. So so if I can sum up, you care about data privacy, composability, the fact that there's no KYC on these platforms just yet, even though in the future, they might implement this. 
easy UX, so easy onboarding and offboarding process, and only needing to use one wallet to interact on all these different platforms. I mean, that's more reasons than I feel like most people who aren't in crypto know about. When we ask the, this question to those outside of crypto, it usually starts from the point of dollar and Bitcoin and not necessarily talking about all of these bigger themes that I feel like really build the foundation for why there's a whole group of people building in DeFi in the first place, right? It isn't about differences between a token and a dollar, but it's like the fundamental way we interact with money mm -hmm. and how we think about ownership of money. Mm -hmm. I guess this leads to the next question. Why do you think DeFi is thriving right now? The total value locked in all DeFi protocols just passed $6 billion a few days ago. And that's incredible given that just at the end of May, the total value locked had just reached a billion dollars. It's really hard not to be interested in what's going on, right? Mm -hmm. At the very least. Mm -hmm. um, that's a very good question. And the the answer is very nuanced because it's like any other anything else in, in the market. You never know for sure what the hell is going on. You can only theorize. But I think it's a combination of th several things, right? Number one, there's a couple of products with real product market fit, and people are actually using these products. Obviously, right? So obviously, that you know that you have like Ave and uh, Synthetics. You also have Uniswap, which is absolutely incredible in terms of growth of trading volume. A lot of these products have been building. During the bear market, it's not overnight success. It's never overnight success, right? A lot of these products, they raise money before the last bull market or during the last bull market. And then they suffer through the entire bear market, but kept on building. And they finally saw light at the end of the tunnel. So that's number one, like real product market fit that has been building for many years. But number two is, I don't think a lot of people realize this is that there's actually quite a bit of hypothecation for this TVA or total value lock, right? So the $6 billion is not $6 billion. It's actually double counted or even triple counted, quadruple counted because of composability. You know, for instance, $1 worth of stablecoin or whatever can be locked in uh, multiple different uh, platforms just because they're integrated with each other. So... I think someone did a, a study of that recently, and I didn't see the actual calculations, but that person theorized that the $6 billion that's being locked right now is actually only $3 billion. But either way, that, you know, that doesn't change the fact that DeFi is growing in terms of uh, value locked. There is also you know, the um, general market sentiment, which is very bullish right now. Because most DeFi products are speculative in nature, the fact that we're in a fairly bullish market sentiment, um, people are using these DeFi products to uh, for their speculative activities, right? So there's a lot of new shitcoins on Ethereum and they're being traded on Uniswap. And people would use a lot of these products for the trading, for the leveraging, for the margining. So the growth is definitely also a, a result of this bullish sentiment. The flip side is in a bear market, we're probably going to see the opposite, right? So it's very reflexive between the price as well as some of the tractions, some of the numbers that we're seeing in DeFi. So before we move on to the next topic, let's take a quick break and hear a few words about Amber Group. This episode of the Crypto Unstacked podcast is presented by Amber Group. Amber Group is a fully integrated crypto finance platform offering a suite of secondary market services across trading, 
wealth management and financing solutions. We are backed by some amazing investors such as Paradigm and Pantera and work with clients and partners all over the world. Head on over to ambergroup.io to learn more about us. That's A-M-B-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.io. I wanted to bring in then a, a tweet where you said overall market sentiment is starting to matter more than idiosyncratic moments. For example, if sentiment is positive, buy whatever, you'll make money, right? And 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 vice versa. So that's the point you're getting at then here, which is in this bullish market, buy whatever DeFi tokens you want to, more likely than not, it'll do well, the extent we don't know. If we do end up correcting, then that's when all of the risks become much more amplified and unveiled to the less informed defier. Is that kind of accurate? Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is purely from my from me as a as a trader, like my gut feeling for where the market is in the cycle. In the early stage, you know, in the bear market, the price discovery generally happens between very informed institutional investors. So there's a lot of idiosyncrasies. But as we go further into the bull market, there's a lot of retail that come into this market. And generally speaking, every token, every asset becomes more correlated with each other just because there's more inflow of money from the system outside of DeFi. As the bull market becomes crazier and crazier, we're going to see even more correlation. You know, frankly, like, again, this is not really about DeFi. It's more about like trading and investing in general. I think we're at a point where timing the exit is more important than picking the uh, individual assets to invest in. But again, you know, this doesn't change the fact that DeFi is fundamentally interesting. Like DeFi is going to go through a bunch of boom and busts. And we're going to see that. We're going to see that maybe later this year or next year. Uh, we don't know yet. But this is just my view of the market. Yeah, definitely very, very interesting. Um, I wanted to bring in another tweet from someone who goes by the name of Danger. I don't know if you know him, but his handle is Safety Third. And he wrote, for TradFi, so traditional finance, you need to understand math and finance. For crypto, you need to understand TradFi and tech. And for DeFi, you need to know all that and also have a degree in game theory. Yeah. <laughs> and one concept in game theory is zero-sum game, which is basically saying that you know one person's gain is another person's loss. And, and this is something that you, you mentioned earlier in our conversation, you know, saying that DeFi is a zero-sum game for now at least. Um, and anyone who acts like it's not is either being disingenuous or doesn't understand DeFi at all. But you're hopeful that it will become a positive-sum game in the future. So two questions here for you. Is DeFi a zero-sum game because DeFi games are primarily dominated by so-called whales? And... How can we shift from this current situation to a more positive sum game where, you know, no one's winning at another person's expense, right? And that there are winnings for everyone to share. Kind of how do we get to this type of culture in the future? Yeah, well, number one, let, let's not pretend that DeFi is being used for anything other than speculation, right? There's projects, projects like Terra uh, that are used for payments. But by and large, DeFi right now is... Uh, for speculative activities. For me, by definition, when you have speculation, uh, the game is zero-sum game. 
because speculation trading in the short term is a game where if one person gains, another person loses. More specifically, uh, I think when I tweeted that uh, zero-sum game, I was specifically referring to what's happening in lending, the lending world in DeFi. People don't realize, like, in DeFi, the yield, like the yield on, on stablecoin or, or on uh, Ethereum or, or whatever, is at around 8%, or sometimes higher, sometimes lower. But people never ask themselves, where does this yield come from? Especially given the fact that in traditional finance, when you leave your money in, in your bank account, you earn zero. Right, virtually zero, uh, and the Fed fund rate is almost zero. I think it's between zero and, and twenty-five basis point right now. Uh, whereas in DeFi, you can generate eight percent. Where does that yield come from? My point is, this yield ultimately comes from the speculative activities, because what's happening is, you know, there's a lot of retail traders in in crypto in general, right? whether it's DeFi or CFI. On average, these people lose more than eight percent, and their counterparties are basically the institutional traders, the market makers, the high-frequency traders. Uh, they can earn more than 8% on their capital. And as a result, these professional traders can leverage and they can borrow capital at around 8 to 10%, right? So they're the borrowers. And then on the other side, there's lenders, right? So these lenders, they lend money to these professional traders through you know, Genesis or you know, BlockFi or whatever. They lend the rate at 8%. But ultimately, this rate will spill over to DeFi because otherwise there will be arbitrage because, you know, you, you can land and borrow on, on, on centralized platforms or you can land and borrow on you know, Compound, Alve, and so on and so forth. So ultimately, this 8% yield in DeFi comes from the fact that, you know, you have retail traders that are losing money consistently trading Bitcoin and shitcoins, you know, on, on the centralized exchanges. So... At the end of the day, this is a wealth transfer from these retail traders to ultimately the lenders. And that's why, that's, that's why I said this is a zero-sum game. So th there are many other zero-sum games in, in crypto in general, but this is one of the, uh, one of the ways in which DeFi, for me right now, is, is a zero-sum game. But like I said, there's projects like, like Terra. There's hopefully projects that can bridge traditional financial services, traditional financial sector, and DeFi in one way or another, such that you can generate some real value. So for instance, I'm very excited about the idea of uncollateralized lending. Mm -hmm. And what that requires is some sort of reputation system or credit system. And one way to bootstrap that is somehow uh, use information from the traditional credit system, you know, using information from the credit bureaus. The reason why this can be a positive sum game is, for me, the golden goose of DeFi is the ability to borrow money and to start new businesses, to do things that are productive, rather than just using the loan for, for trading. So I think that's the end game for crypto, is uncollateralized uh, lending for productive activities. Anchoring on to your point about speculation and how that is really the primary driver for DeFi today. You know, we've seen so many flavors of DeFi tokens come out lately, and most of them seem to fit this definition exactly, right? Just speculation through and through. Mm -hmm. is, is there a common thread in the way that these types of DeFi tokens are gaining credibility and accruing value to the underlying protocols given that there's no tangible use case compared to a coin like Terra, for example. So in place of utility, 
how are these DeFi tokens really gaining value? Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of these uh, new tokens don't have any value now. In theory, the value comes from the discounted future value. And part of it can be some, some future cash flow. So for instance, a lot of these new projects, when they launch, they're purely governance tokens that don't do anything other than voting, right? But uh, as time goes on, the voters or the token holders can vote to upgrade the protocol or to upgrade the token in such a way that any profit or revenue generated through you know, exchange or through lending can ultimately accrue to the token holders. So in theory, you can, you can argue that uh, these tokens have some rights, potential rights to some future cash flow. So that's one way I think it could accrue value. And the other way is uh, a lot of fundamentals-driven investors don't want to admit this, but some of the tokens, I'm not going to mention names, but they're, they're obvious, right? Some of these tokens, they have a lot of meme premium, mm-hmm. right? You know which tokens are. I'm not going to mention the names. But the idea is that when you associate memes uh, with a crypto asset, I think ultimately this crypto asset becomes a collectible, a digital collectible. And in many ways, for me, like memes can last longer than your so-called fundamentals. So I think, you know, some of the uh, quote-unquote serious investors don't want to admit this, but I I think digital collectible is is a real thing. People used to talk about NFTs for digital collectible, but digital collectibles don't have to be non-fungible. They can be entirely fungible. So Dogecoin is one of the first Mm -hmm. fungible digital collectible. And we're seeing a lot of that happening in DeFi as well. High level, these are the two ways in which tokens can accrue value. But there could be others that, that I'm missing. Yeah, but does governance really matter for these meme tokens? I mean, that's the thing, right? It's like people buy into this, having participation in a, a token's future. But I mean, at the end of the day, do these meme coins mean anything? And, and by extension, does governance really mean anything? Yeah, just to be clear, the, the meme coins and the governance tokens are are, are separate. They're, they're independent um, concepts. Um, meme, co- meme coins, I think it's it's debatable. Um, but the governance tokens, um, you know, the, the, the analogy is, uh, is equity in a startup, right? When you build a startup, there's no cash flow. Like at the beginning, there's no cash flow. And the only thing that your equity does is governance. Is to pick, you know, who's the CEO. That's it. That's pretty much it. Um, but the idea is that this equity, at some point in the future, can generate some cash flow. I think we're seeing, like, I think that it's the same idea in, in crypto uh, or in, in the governance tokens. Um, relatedly, um, uh, you know, people people use uh, the to- uh, total value locked uh, as one of the you know, fundamental uh, or fundamentals-based uh, metric to value uh, crypto. Um, <laughs> frankly, it doesn't make sense to me. But at the end of the day, if the market chooses a particular metric as their main valuation metric, you cannot change that. You have to go with the market. Um, you cannot say the market is wrong mm. just because they disagree with you. Uh, just because this token does not generate value doesn't mean that the market is wrong. The market <laughs> thinks a certain way. And your job as an investor is to predict what the market will think next rather than saying, okay, the market is wrong currently. Why am I right? So that's that's how I think about these, these tokens. Yeah, very interesting. Going back to something that you said earlier, you know, which is composability. 
specifically between a number of lending protocols in DeFi, you know, if we were to come across another Black Thursday type scenario, do you think that these protocols run the risk of being over leveraged, given that there's just more interconnection between these protocols over time as the space gets bigger? Yeah, absolutely. It's going to happen. And at the end of the day, right now, most of the price discovery happens on centralized exchange, CeFi, right? Uh, like, you know, DeFi is nice and all, but it a lot of the, part of the mechanism uh, in which DeFi works um, is very much dependent on what's happening in CeFi. So if we do get another round of deleveraging, I think a lot of DeFi platforms can go bust. But the only question is, how, how much of a deleveraging do we need uh, to see a big crash in DeFi? I don't know the answer, but the risk is certainly there. And I worry about that. I think at some point in the next 6 to 24 months, DeFi will see its first like real test. And that comes from a combination of a huge amount of leverage in DeFi, as well as potentially you know scammers coming in. Leverage is a big issue. Uh, the, the only thing that, that makes DeFi not as risky as DeFi right now is the fact that most of the loans are over-collateralized. But at some point, if we do get under-collateralized loans and margin trading, things can get really risky. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with you there. Chow, now I want to move on to talking about DeFi in Asia. You've tweeted that there's a level of information asymmetry between Western and Asian crypto communities and that this chasm is quite large right now. And in the coming months, crypto Twitter will watch projects such as Terra, which you mentioned earlier, rise in prominence. Can you talk about the kinds of information asymmetry there are right now and why we should be aware of these? Well, let's start with why we should be aware of these. I think the single most important reason why we should think about this is that U.S. regulators are doing an extremely poor job of you know, encouraging innovation. Uh, I think we've been seeing that since late 2017, that a lot of projects left the US, went to uh, Europe and Asia. I, I would argue that right now, the center of the world for crypto innovation is Singapore, due to the fact that US regulators are not encouraging innovation. Also, China is, obviously, there are risks for doing business in China as well. So a lot of the you know, new projects move to Singapore. All the action is happening in Asia right now, like it or not. Uh, and I think a lot of people in, in the U.S. or in, in, in the West don't realize this. So I think this is the most important reason why everyone should care about things that are happening in Asia. You know, there are projects like Terra, which I mentioned before, and there's like new projects like Monte Carlo Dex in, in the DeFi, like strictly DeFi space, right? Like MCDEX, Strike Protocol, and Kyber, even though some of the OG DeFi projects are, in, are mainly based in uh, Asia as well. But the information flow is not perfect. A lot of what's happening in Asia is happening on, on WeChat. And uh, next month, WeChat is going to be banned in the U.S., apparently, uh, thanks to Trump's new uh, executive order. I, I never knew the, the president of the United States had that much power, to be honest. That's going to be bad. And um, yeah, I don't know where the information will flow, like maybe Telegram or something. But definitely, definitely need to pay attention. Talking about China, why do you think there aren't as many projects in mainland China right now. You've mentioned some of them, you know, in Singapore, kind of in greater Asia regions, but I'm sure there are just, you know, some core reasons why we're not seeing the type of 
communities being built around these Chinese projects as for the Western projects, right? Even if there is interest. Yeah, this is a really good question. I actually hadn't thought about this, but there are a couple of ideas that just came to my mind. I think number one is it's a culture thing. I think Chinese people don't really care about new fancy tech. Uh, they care about growth, user acquisition, and making money. Like Chinese people are, are really pragmatic rather than intellectually curious or philosophically curious into new technologies. So as a result, you see a, you know, a bunch of very big CFI projects, right? Centralized exchanges coming out of China and they make a fuckload of money, right? They're some of the biggest exchanges in the world. And um, many people in the West don't really know that. Like they don't know that Huobi and OKX trade far more volume than like, you know, Coinbase and, and, and Kraken, et cetera. Um, so I, I think there's a there's a culture thing there. Chinese people want to build businesses that have real cash flow uh, rather than tinkering with new technology. I think that's one reason. Another reason potentially is uh, regulatory because Chinese regulators in some way are not too different from U.S. regulators in the sense that there's a lot of gray area. They're not making things very transparent or straightforward. And that leaves a lot of uncertainty for entrepreneurs and founders. You would rather build a new business in a jurisdiction where you can be sure that you can conduct your business for the coming decade rather than in a jurisdiction where uh, they can crack you down anytime. So the regulatory uncertainty might be another issue. But again, I'm not an expert in these areas. Uh, I'm just entirely uh, hypothesizing. Mm -hmm. Good things to take note of. And it's good to just keep things in mind as, as we think about bridging more the East and the West, because ultimately that's really how we grow as a crypto ecosystem, right? It is to make sure that we sort of bridge the gap so that there is less of a information asymmetry that you talk about quite often on Twitter going forward. Mm -hmm. So now looking at the future of DeFi, what will it take for DeFi to fully decentralize? You've tweeted that DeFi has to fully decentralize the entire stack, which possibly includes going full uh, anon, so anonymous. Can you share more of your thoughts yeah, so like, like I mentioned at the beginning of this interview, DeFi has several fundamentally interesting aspects. But for me, the most interesting aspect is censorship resistance. Like a lot of times you cannot have the other qualities such as friction reduction without being censorship resistant, without being resistant to, you know, regulators fucking you up. And I think the regulators will come in, like they will regulate a lot of DeFi projects out of existence. You know, the only way for, for DeFi projects to be really resistant to these, you know, regulators or regulations is to be fully decentralized. And you have to decentralize the entire stack. By the entire stack, I mean from not just the computing layer. Right now, we're decentralizing the computing layer, which is Ethereum, but also decentralizing file storage, DNS, governance, right? Governance being, you know, having a DAO, for instance, to govern the, uh, the project. And potentially even having the, the entire team of developers being full anonymous so that they're purely resistant to bad regulations. Now, I'm not saying all regulations are bad, but the fact that we're building this new financial system is a fundamental threat to some of the central banking system, central financial uh, system. And it's a new balance of power. The old school you know, financial people and regulators, they're going to feel threatened and they're going to 
try to regulate DeFi for sure. So that's how I'm thinking about this space. Got it. And Chow, as we wrap up here, I did want to ask you one of my favorite questions. What's the most contrarian view you hold about crypto? Good question. Um, well, I don't have that many contrarian views uh, in the long term. I, th- I think a lot of contrarian views have been set there. But I have a couple of short-term potentially contrarian trades, right? So Filecoin is going to launch very soon. I think the OTC price is putting Filecoin at a maybe two orders of magnitude more expensive than some of the OG storage coins. So uh, the market might reprice these storage coins. Just the short-term trades. I don't, I don't think a lot of people are talking about this, but I think it, it can get really interesting. And then there's Zcash. Uh, Z- people, are, people hate Zcash so much because it has been <laughs> bleeding for three years, but I think it's over. I think the bleed is over. The first halving is going to happen uh, in next month or in two months. Uh, and then we've seen a clear bottom in the price action. I think Zcash is going to do really well. Uh, I think we're, gonna, we're seeing a global comeback of um, you know, uh, focus on, on privacy. Um, so I think Zcash is going to come back. And then there's Aragon, you know, these products, like there's, there's quite a few things that um, are outside of uh, strict DeFi but that are closely related. So like there's governance like Aragon and Handshake, you know, these are still like fairly under the radar projects because right now all eyes are on DeFi. So uh, it might be interesting to look at things that are outside of DeFi as a, as a contrarian bet. Nice. Thanks for, for the few tips there to look out for in the future. Well, Chao, I really enjoyed chatting with you today. How can our listeners get in touch with you? Um, you can follow me on Twitter. QWQIAO is my Twitter handle. Yeah, I don't use anything else. I don't, I don't have a LinkedIn anymore, but uh, my DM is always open on Twitter. Great. Well, Chao, appreciate you coming on the Crypto Unstack podcast, and I look forward to catching up with you again very soon. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for having me today. As always, hope you enjoyed this week's Cup of Crypto. If you like what you heard, Please share and subscribe on Spotify and anchor.fm slash crypto unstacked. Do engage with us through social media. I'll provide details in the show notes and connect with me on Twitter at Les Lambo. That's L-E-S-L-A-M-B-0. Would love to chat with you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take care and see you at our next episode.